Hi, welcome to Culture Sex Relationships, though I'm probably going to repeat that again in a couple of minutes. So uh, I recorded this a few weeks ago. This was the second part, the much uh, promised, long-awaited second part of the two-parter that I did um, on kink. Remember back to the episode where we had um, Cora Cascalera on the show to talk about the possibilities of curative kink. Uh, and that I looked, I found uh, their paper on that and their co-author's paper on that when I was researching um, a question that was sent to me. Well, this is that question, okay? So this is like the second part of a two-parter. I've delayed it for... um, I've delayed putting this episode out in public for, well, because of the whole uh, uh, shit I've been getting from the right-wing press lately, basically. Um... Uh, so uh, I'm putting it out now. Um, yeah, to find out more about that, uh, well, I don't really say very much in public about it, but it's about my website for over-14s. Bish, if you want to find out more about it or show and or show some support for it, you can join the Patreon and support the website. It gets thousands of young people visiting every day, Googling their questions around things like kink and um, right-wing press hate that. Uh, so uh, if you could show some support that would be wonderful uh, as well as supporting the show I know two patrons so patreon.com forward slash bish uk is that one but on with this show um, so this one is, has been available to patrons of, uh, of this podcast patreon.com forward slash culture sex relationships where uh, they get early access to shows and um, uh, readings extra bits and bobs I'm going to start doing some more extra content soon as well um so if you want to support that uh, this show that would be great um as you can see with the episode title we're talking about doming and the possibility of someone doming in kink standing in for um an abuser um so obviously i'm not going into massive amounts of detail we're not describing anything here but the overall episode is about this so if you find that this topic quite tricky generally you might want to give it a miss um but there are no particular moments where i'm talking about anything in any detail whatsoever um it's all you know as per usual i'll try to kind of not go into too much detail all right so enough waffling from me here is past me with the episode i hope you find it useful and or enjoyable okay tra bye then Hello and welcome to Culture Sex Relationships with me, Justin Hancock. Um, this is a an Ask Justin uh, episode, in case uh, you're not familiar. Sometimes people send questions in and I answer them uh, using some of the cultural and critical theory and um, psychoanalytic theory I've been learning about on the show and also just, um, you know, having a bit of a reckon. So uh, this question was actually sent to me via... Navara Media when I, I was being their agony uncle I tried to answer all of their questions um, like any good agony uncle aunt uncle um, uh, I uh, you know there's a big post bag of you get a big post bag of um, questions and I try and give some answers to everybody and I've kind of worked this up now into a longer answer which I'm going to do with some bullet points and I'm just going to talk um so there might be a blog post written about this at some point um, and if I do I'll direct you to it anyway so here's the question I'm a straight man I've always considered myself a feminist but I've known for a long time that I have a predilection for playing the dominant you might say 
mildly sadistic, role in BDSM-style relationships. The sex I've had of this kind has always been consensual, and my female partners have tended to be enthusiastically submissive. The BDM sex I've had included some short-term casual relationships and loving long-term relationships. I also enjoy what you might call vanilla sex, but can feel unsatisfied if a relationship doesn't include BDSM. Even though my female partners have always encouraged me to express this aspect of my sexuality, I can't help feeling uncomfortable at times. I enjoy the sex, but I do feel uncomfortable taking on a persona during sex that doesn't feel like me, using words I would never think to apply to any woman in ordinary life, for instance. And I've noticed that my sexual partners have often expressed sexual trauma in the past. A number have explicitly told me that they are replaying their trauma via their masochistic sexual tendencies. Psychologically, I can understand this, and I've felt real love and tenderness in BDSM relationships. It breaks my heart to hear about the trauma of a person I care for. But there is something deeply troubling to me about essentially being asked to stand in for a past abuser, however different the present day context, and sometimes even being asked to do things that run very close to traumatic situations my partners have experienced. I'm always respectful, I understand about talking about these things before, through beforehand and about aftercare, and yet I can't help wondering if my kink, for my partners and for me too, is the expression of something more troubling, something I and perhaps they too should be working through to get to a healthier emotional place rather than replaying. I'm not sure there are any answers to this. I myself had a complex upbringing in terms of sex, though no direct and obvious trauma or abuse. I've spoken to some psychotherapists about this issue at length, but my discomfort hasn't ever entirely gone away. I think first, uh, so great question, and I think that's the first first thing that she's for dwelling on actually, just how good a question that is. And actually, in your question, there's a lot there which demonstrates the thoughtfulness that you have around this, and some of the things that are tricky and troubling around kink. And sex generally, I think you could apply all of this to a lot of things that aren't kink too. Um, and I think that it is worthwhile thinking about things like masculinity, power, consent, care, um, and social and sexual scripts as well. And I think that's really important. I think first and foremost, it's also just okay to say, it's okay for you not to do this. I know this isn't what you're really saying, but I do just want to give permission at the beginning to say, well, if you're being asked to do something which is, as you say, deeply troubling, and something which is, um, you know, causing you discomfort, then it's okay not to do this. There is a huge amount of pressure on us um, to, particularly for those of us who are used to taking on roles in sex, and also, and when those roles are kind of um, fixed to various aspects of our gender and various aspects of our identity it's difficult to hand those things off and it's difficult to not do things i also do think that there is the sense of you know there is the sexual escalator um so there is this idea that and again this comes from sex positivity and i guess um uh there, there is the sense that you know we should or we should all be doing more and always be escalating the sex that we do and in order to be you know in inverted commas really kinky or properly kinky then we in inverted commas should be doing all of these things uh whether we want to or not if we start doing those things to ourselves 
making ourselves do these things, treating ourselves non-consensually, then it can, that can quite easily bleed over into treating other people non-consensually, which is not the vibe I'm getting from you. And this is very, very complex. But I think it's just important to set out some of the context for this around masculinity and sex and doming and topping generally is that there is this sense, probably more likely to be outside of kink communities, there is this sense of more is better, harder is better, more, 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 say yes to things. Okay, again, this isn't the sense that I'm getting from you, but just want to flag it up. These are the pressures. It is okay not to do these things. It is also just okay to say, I'm interested in doing these things, but I do find it troubling. And obviously we do this in the in the pre-scene chat, you know, when we're talking about the kinds of things that we're, when we're talking about things like, and again, the the reader sending us in, sending us in is familiar with this. If you're not familiar with this, dear listener, Meg John and I did an episode about kink, which uh, you should go back and listen to if you're not familiar with this. But we all might be familiar with, you know, talking about what are our green flags, what are the things that are okay for us, or the things we definitely want to happen. What are our amber flags, which are like. Uh, this would be troubling you know this would be in my kind of stretch zone but um it would both it would mostly be okay and then there are things that are red flags for us things that uh where we'd have to shut things down straight away or say absolutely no we not we can't do this uh where it might um trigger us where it might um put us into a completely different kind of headspace into a into a kind of panic mode or a highly reactive stressed mode where our sympathetic nervous system kicks off and just kind of goes and we're going to react mode and some of the some of those things that we've talked about on the podcast before you know trauma responses might kick in the uh, the five f's uh, that we've talked about before so you know so it's okay in those conversations to say okay so this thing about me being a stand-in for a former abuser, if this is something that you're definitely saying is something you're into, I'm maybe that sounds like it could be like an amber flag. And you could say, well, and again, we use the rest of this episode to kind of chat about this, where it could be like, well, if you're only doing this and you want, if you want to call me by your abuser's name, or uh, for example, or you want to do exactly the things that your abuser was doing, or you exactly want to reenact a scene, I'm out, I can't do that. But if you want me to stand in for someone who's a bit like that, to do some of the things that are close to it, but not exactly, um, for you to call me by my actual name, you know, and the, the context for this is this, then, you know, and the context for the relationship might be this very loving, deeply protective, deeply caring relationship, or, you know, that, you know, then you might be more up for it. So again, you can't separate off the context for the scene in which and you can't separate off the context of the scene and the whole relationship which is in which it's happening so again as you've indicated in your your question you know you have had long-term relationships where there has been bdsm and within the context of a long-term relationship you might be more prepared to take on this kind of role to do these kinds of things than you were if you you might be if it was a casual or a short-term thing um Anyway, so that's that. It's okay not to. I'm going to talk a bit more about consent as well in uh, in a bit. But um, I think, you know, sometimes we might not have enough people saying it's okay not to. I just think sometimes, you know, and I wrote a, a chapter about this in my book about consent. Can we talk about consent? 
which is a book for young people. And there's a chapter in there called, eh, let's not. Um, because sometimes we don't get enough opportunities to step up, step off the escalator to say, nah, I just want to go back down a step or do something else. And that should always be fine. Anyway, so um, I know that next point is that um, you've not really raised this in your in your question but it's just a thing to flag up and again it's something that i chatted about with Corey cascalera in the episode we did about uh, his paper where he was the leader author on uh, with a bunch of other, other other authors too where he talks about curative kink um folk with folk who do kink are no more or less likely to have been abused than people who don't do kink that's what the most of the current research is saying uh, and that's what Corey was saying in in that episode too so there is this kind of common sense assumption that um, people who do kink must have been abused in some way, um, you know, and I'm not sure that's a particularly helpful kind of framing. And also it's kind of uh, the most important thing to ask, I think, is, you know, what might kink do? Well, what might people who have experienced abuse, sexual violence, um, what might they do? How might they understand their own sexual subjectivities or their kink subjectivities or themselves um, anyway there's more in the paper about that and also more in last week's episode about that but to come on to this thing that i talked with Corey about this idea of curative kink i think it's just important to unpack a few things here um, so what Corey's paper was doing looking at curative kink was to say okay for folk who have been um uh the victims or survivors of abuse um when they were younger, uh, and and that they and for those for those who have experienced that and also take part in kink, what does kink do? What are the possibilities for kink to be in some way therapeutic? Okay, what might they get out of it? Okay, and so it did find that there were quite significant. I mean, this is a, uh, a qualitative study, not a quantitative study, but it found for those people who took part in this research, very in depth research. <clears throat> research with these participants was that there were these you know really um potentially transformative uh, kinds of outcomes from kink so the possibility of healing reframing redefining repurposing liberation from trauma and pain uh, a liberation from uh, triggering triggering forms of touch you know there there were massive possibilities in this uh, in this but a few things are really important here to just pay attention to. First and foremost, those participants in that study were doing all of this. And again, you know, the first thing that they look at was the um, the creative cultural context for healing. Uh, that's the really important thing. So Corey described that as the kind of the soil or the compost. Okay, so any, everyone who was involved in that study looking at curative kink had access to... Um, therapy some of it was better than others but all they had access to a kink community where these kinds of conversations were okay to have where they could talk to other people who were having this so there was already this kind of soil this compost that can help any potential you know green shoots of therapeutic work to happen okay when that was in place the actual kink that they were doing had this possibility of having these aforementioned therapeutic effects and this is not to say that this is i am not giving and corey and i talked about this in the in the episode that we did about this in our, in our interview 
We're not prescribing kink, okay? We're not saying if you if you're still struggling with, for example, uh, complex post-traumatic stress disorder or um, uh, trauma responses generally, uh, we are not prescribing this, okay? But we're just saying in these circumstances where there was this context of healing and it was this and there was the, the, the there were the possibilities of support this is what it might do and so a lot of the things that we were talking about and that they talked about in the paper that were that were able to provide this therapeutic kind of outcome uh, were some of the practices that involved I've already mentioned uh, red amber green flags but also um, the the big the big emphasis on consent during sex so paying attention to you know the obvious one is safe words but also paying attention to um uh, each other's breathing uh, paying attention to uh, the noises that we're making paying attention to um how our body's responding the sensations the vibe creating the context the the ability to talk about this before and to insert pauses um during kink uh, or during sex generally uh, the ability to just hold that space and the ability to do that as you mentioned in your question the ability to do aftercare so providing people with what it is that they need to do afterwards because it's this awareness that kink can put us in any kind of sex not that kink is always sex but kink and or sex can put us in a very different state of consciousness um again and as you've been saying it can it we can be going through some things that feel analogous to things that have been painful in the past but also we could be going through experiences which feel absolutely entirely whoa you know i can't the those i can't put that into words um experiences and those i can't put that into words experiences are what jacques lacan would call um the real uh, or jouissance so we've talked about this on recent episodes this thing which is overwhelming which is which is which could be pleasurable but not a, it might also be an unpleasurable pleasurable if that makes sense it can be so overwhelming that care is needed okay and that is a thing that we that can happen from kink and sex and other things too like um watching a scary movie um playing an intensive game of sport going on a roller coaster um you know i tend to avoid all of these things but you know think of something <laughs> think of something which really involves your body being very highly activated and your brain going into a different state of consciousness or uh, your unconscious being activated we might call the jouissance or the real so these kink practices which take into account um all of all of these possibilities for sex and these containers of consent think of the the care involved in all of those things um i've listed a few here a few of these things here in my notes but um so this kind of in the intentionality the, the talk about motivations the ability to slow things down that there aren't any surprises maximizing maximizing people's choices um doing this care work okay they're all really, really integral parts to kink. They should all be really integral parts to any kind of sex too. And it is that which makes the kink curative. Okay, it's not how you pad it's not the paddling someone, it's how you talk about which paddle, when we're gonna use it, how we start off, starting off slowly, 
checking in and making sure that you know that that was the right amount of sensation um and then afterwards taking care to make sure to uh to talk about what was what was okay about that or not okay right so it's all of these things it's not the thing itself it's the it's the how we do it and it's about paying attention to the process not the content of what we do and i feel like this is something i talk about all of the time like we need to be talking about the process of for example uh, we need to be paying more attention to for example the processes of sex education rather than the content of sex education so uh sorry i'm going off on a rant here uh but just to finish that thought um you know if you're doing sex ed and you're just lecturing kids and you're showing them a video about consent and you're making them watch this video, even if that video is really, really good, what are they actually learning? Well, they're being lectured and they're being made to watch a video. So what are they learning about consent, right? So, you know, so what I've been teaching teachers about how to do sex ed, it's about paying attention to the vibe. It's all about making sure the vibe is okay so that people don't feel ashamed, so that people feel affirmed, so that people feel they can be honest and communicate and learn valuable communication skills. That is good sex ed. That is also what we need to do for any kind of sex or kink or relationship or anything. It's about setting the right vibe, okay? And that's really important. So this is where we get to... Again, we talked about this in a previous episode. At the end of last year, uh, Tina Sicker came on um, who's an academic uh, who's written an amazing book called sex consent and justice and we talked about her reframing of consent so i guess her redefining of consent or the opening up of consent but uh, her phrase is a pleasure and care centered ethic of embodied and relational sexual otherness okay that's what we need to have okay and crucially these are the kinds of things that kink might offer that also we could learn from when we do any other kinds of sex too. But it's really important that we're not just doing this towards, it's not just, and this is Tina's point, and actually I'm gonna talk about this a little bit and a little bit more later on, so I'm not gonna spoil the ending for this, but you know, this thing of the pleasure and care-centered ethic, care, ah, I can't even say it, I'm reading it out. Pleasure and care-centered ethic of embodied and relational sexual otherness applies to the other but also ourselves because so we are going to be the others other at some point we're going to they are going to be the subject and we are going to be the other so they also need to have this pleasure and care centered ethic towards us too and also we need to have the pleasure and care centered ethic of embodied and sexual relational otherness to ourselves so rather than just thinking about okay what is it that i can do for this person to make sure that their experience is going to be therapeutic we also have to consider how we might do this for ourselves this has to be co-created okay and the other here so in the the other you're describing is the women who are subs in your life but this dear listener this could be you know any other is not going to appreciate it if and it's also not going to be fully consensual uh, if the, the, if consent is only this one-way thing or if all of these pleasure and care-centered ethic of embodied and relational sexual otherness is not this co-created thing. Think of it as a, you know, if we are going to have like a, if we are going to think of a boundary, and I keep saying this recently as well, if we are, if we are going to have a boundary, think of it as a garden fence that two neighbors are co-creating. They're both looking after the same garden fence. They're putting it up. It benefits them both. They're both putting it up okay that's the way to think about it so it's got to come from both ways anyway 
I'm going to talk about this a bit more in a bit because otherwise I'm going to spoil the bit where I get onto feminist new materialism. Uh, but just I'm just going to cover this point now about um, your who the the who you're standing in for and the the you know the role that you're playing. Uh, the important thing to always know is that it is a role that you're playing. Okay, even if. Um, even if you are not dressed up, even if you are, you know, using your name, your regular, you know, Saturday name rather than, you know, any kind of special like Dom name or anything that you might be called, um, you are performing some kind of fantasy. That a lot of people might argue that we we are form we are performing some kind of fantasy, no matter what kind of sex we do at all. Anyway, just I'll get to that point in a second. So it's a, you're a stand-in. And again, this is the thing with kink is that is that it's creating the context by which that role that you're playing is very definitely a role that you're playing. Okay, it's still you, but it's a role. It's a fantasy. And this, as I talked about in uh, in recent episodes, when I talked about um, the the when I gave advice to the woman who is specifically turned on by men who treated her really badly, and also when we talked about the sexual non-relation in uh, my episodes with um, Jacob and Bonnie about their amazing book, Event Horizon, we talked about Lacan's idea, Jacques Lacan's idea of the sexual non-relation. So, the sexual non-relation, again, I've explained this in other episodes, the sexual non-relation is basically the difficulty of the subject, you, having a desire that can be fulfilled by the other or the object, okay, and for you to be doing the same to them, okay, and it's a very difficult thing for, well, some would argue, or Lacan would argue, it's a very different slash impossible thing for there to be this simultaneous, simultaneousness, simultaneous, simultane, there's a good word for that, but I don't know what it is. This simultaneous kind of desire which goes both ways, okay? And that it's very tricky. Um, what uh, Zizek in his book on Lacan said, look, so what we need here is fantasy. What fantasy does is to provide like a smoothing over of this of this kind of, uh, this fracture, this inability for, the, or the, the difficulty of one person meeting another's desires whilst they might simultaneously meet our desires, that harmonious kind of meeting of each other's sexual desires. And this is what fantasy does here, okay? So, and I think there are other ways to think about this too. I think there are kind of less psychodynamic ways to think about this, which I'll come into in a second, but this is basically what it's doing. So you could think of it as um, what the what is happening for these women is not even so much therapy in this in this context of kink. It might be therapeutic, but there's other things going on too, okay? So, again, Zizek would say here that because fantasy is, fantasy provides the smoothing over process, it also teaches us how to desire. So what you're helping these women doing, whether they, and they might not be, this, I don't want to speak for them, but this this might be something that they might kind of un, uh, kind of unconsciously realise, I suppose, and it might be something which is going on is that you're you're teaching them how to desire in a way that they've not been taught before. So it's what the fantasy does. What them seeing you as a fantasy does is gives them some subjectivity. 
it means that they can understand what it is that they desire okay so they are creating a new a part object this guy who shows up is who's able to do these things for them in order that they can desire both you and also sex or kink or whatever else whatever other desires they have it also gives them the object cause of desire so it helps them to actually desire okay which is important it's good and important to have desires and it's good to desire to desire okay and that's what this does okay and so for folk who have gone through trauma yes or, or sexual abuse or any kind of abuse at all yes that's therapeutic but that's why it might be therapeutic because it is giving them the opportunity to experience some desires which don't feel you know troubling which might feel liberatory and this is what we talked about in the um in the curative kink um uh article and in the discussion we had about this but so far so psychodynamic okay but what this thing does what thinking about the subject and the object in this way does or might do is to put us in this kind of fixed social location of there being a doer and a done to there being a subject and an object or a subject and another okay and you know there are clearly some problematic gender roles and problematic um gender like discourses that we can have when we talk about one person being the doer and the other person being the done to okay so the done to is is situated as the gatekeeper um for uh consent they're the person who gets to say yes or no um and the other person is always wanting to do the thing you know so the doer is always wanting to do it the being done to gets to decide whether the doer gets to do the thing to the done like it you see what i'm saying here and so in the way that we've been talking so far this is the kind of these are kinds of some of the things that i guess these are some of the things that have been coming up but a new way of looking at this or not a new way but a, a way i like to think about this is this um again tina sicker and i talked about this but it's to talk about the work of um of karen barad uh and this this idea of interactivity okay this so we're talking here about feminist new materialism i'm just going to read out what interaction means so interact so this is from um a website uh, explaining it if you google karen barad and interaction this is the first website that comes up i'll put a link in the show notes interaction is a baradian term karen barad uh, i would love to have somebody say it's a hancockian term that would be nice someday i doubt that's ever going to happen but anyway interaction is a baradian term used to replace interaction which necess necessitates pre-established bodies that then participate in action with each other interaction understands agency not as an inherent property of an individual or human to be exercised but as a dynamism of forces in which all in which all designated things in inverted commas are constantly exchanging and diffracting influencing and working inseparably interaction also acknowledges the impossibility of an absolute separation or classically understood objectivity in which an apparatus a technology or medium used to measure a property or a person using an apparatus are not considered to be part of a process that allows for the specifically located outcomes or measurement that last bit well karen barrett's a physicist a feminist physicist 
uh, who also is a Deleuze, a Deleuze and Guattarian. Okay, so um, so what we're talking about here is the thing that I've been talking about on a lot of shows. I've been boring my girlfriend half to death with this. Is this idea of affective flow, or that everything that we ourselves, everything that we do, everything that we understand is an affective flow. It's always in relation to something else. That even our idea of ourself doesn't exist. Ourselves only exist in relation to. Um, other people, other non-people, our thoughts, our memories, our ideas of gender, think our past experiences, um, you know, the sofa I'm sitting on, uh, this computer I'm speaking to, you know, um, the air I'm breathing in, the plants I can see outside my window, you know, I'm that we are constantly in a relation anyway. So, what might this mean? for us when we are thinking about your situation so it's easy to get stuck in to get into these roles where you are um a fixed where there are fixed ideas and fixed social locations which tina again that's tina sicker's um term where you a man are taking part in kink and that you do domination slash sadism towards women who um are uh, feminized uh, who are submissive and who also are taking part in domination for this thing known as therapy what this idea of an effective flow asks us to do is to kind of squint or even better to look at these under an electron microscope <laughs> so um, again this is now I'm going to talk about Deleuze and Guattari. So Deleuze and Guattari, I've not read any Deleuze and Guattari. It's okay not to have read any Deleuze and Guattari. I've got all my understanding of this from uh, reading other people who have read Deleuze and Guattari, but also uh, there's a really great episode about this in Jeremy Gilbert's Culture Power Politics um, podcast uh, seminar series, which I'd encourage everyone to listen to. It's really, really good and taught me a lot about this. But if we were to look at an electron microscope at things that we consider to be solid, and things that definitely exist, even under an electron microscope, we would see everything was moving. That every, that something which we might think of as this solid thing which isn't moving, is moving. There are some molecules moving. And so, what might be the benefits of us looking at something in this molecular way? So what might be the benefits of looking at masculinity, uh, domination, uh, uh, BDSM? What might be the benefits of looking at those as things which aren't existing in this solid, singular, um, kind of concrete kind of state, but that all, all of those things are capable of moving and all of those things are existing in relation to something else at all times. So what are the benefits of looking at things in this kind of molecular way? So whilst you're doing something, whilst you're doing some of the acts or some of the things or using some of the words that you use to describe the women that you're um, taking part in these kink scenes with, what are the small things that you might notice that might be something else? Can you pay attention to things that are a little bit different? Okay, so for example, think about your own thoughts, fantasies, memories. What emotions might be coming to the fore for you? Are there any kind of sensations that are going on for you? What's going on for your own breathing? What might it mean for a man to be both caring and sadistic or sadistically caring? Okay, what might what might you notice about the kinds of 
the the works of the, the work of care that you're doing um in what way is that masculinized or is that not masculinized or do the terms feminine and masculine also have this kind of molecular quality where those things start to drift around too and that people who um and you know that people who aren't men are doing feminine things and that people who aren't women are doing uh, masculine things and that those terms themselves start to bleed into other things and become more of a spectrum or to become more molecular constantly changing and moving so i'm kind of inviting you here to think about okay well this is no longer an exchange of things it's not an interaction it's this interaction okay so that whenever you're involved in the scene everything is changing all of the time. So it's just about creating containers to allow for a scene to happen and to see what might become. Even if you are going to remain a dom, paying attention to the different ways of doming, the different ways that you are embodying a role, the differences in the role you're being asked to take and the actual role that you're taking on and thinking about your side of that role that you're taking on is also important. That getting away from it being an interaction also gets us away from consent having to be this thing that one person holds and the other person has to create the conditions for and the other person has to do or demonstrate enough of in order that the other person can do a thing. Consent also is part of this affective flow. And again, I'm, you already know about this because you've told me that you do all of the aftercare stuff and you're, you're very familiar with this and you're very experienced with it. But it's paying attention to to this kind of to all of these things that you're talking about at this molecular level might help you to see some other ways of looking at this and to see some other ways where um, this might feel this more kind of uh, co-created, more uh, less static, and you might feel this kind of flow, and you might get the sense of what else can I be? What else can this can domination be? What else can me having this fantasy role be what else does it mean for someone to be submissive all that kind of stuff i also just think it's just important to do this for everything else too um because well first and foremost actually if you're only doing things because they're therapeutic it's going to get very boring very quickly okay so it's also got to be looking at what else are the other outcomes in what way might this be something that i'm enjoying okay and what else might i be getting out of it if you're only going to be someone's therapist it's going to get really dull really quickly and it, they should only last for 50 minutes and you should charge them you know a sliding scale between you know uh 40 and 70 pounds for 50 minutes and you know offer some low rates for people who are unwaged uh you know so you know therapy being someone's therapist can get quite boring so it's got to be this kind of co-creative thing where you're actually able to enjoy it so another way of thinking about this is well to what extent are you actually enjoying it rather than this being a task that you're having to do what are the possibilities for you to feel pleasure from this and what do you need for you to feel pleasure from this and are there moments where you're feeling pleasure are there moments where you're feeling displeasure which goes back to thinking about where we were at the beginning of it being okay not to do these things but also to think about this kind of thing for everything else too literally everything else we do in our lives can have this pleasure and care-centered ethic of embodied and relational sexual otherness which happens in this kind of as i've been talking about in this interactive affective flow of things 
Okay, so rather than one person transactionally doing something for another, there's nothing wrong with transactional sex or transactional kink, but I'm talking about this in the in the interactive way. If we were to think about interactive, there might be greater possibilities for pleasure and enjoyment within uh, the ability to create the right vibe for us to be able to do things that might lead to more pleasure and might lead to something else and might lead to the sense of us becoming which I think is what happens in the context of curative kink. I kind of rambled at the bit there, at the end there, about Deleuze and Guattari, but I get very excited about uh, feminism, new materialism. But I hope that all made sense, and I hope that you found that useful. Um, and, uh, yeah, I think that's all I've got to say. So uh, thank you so much for listening. If you really enjoyed this, please consider supporting the show via Patreon, patreon.com forward slash culture sex relationships. You can also see the other things that I do at my website, uh, justinhancock.co.uk. I offer a coaching service now, so if anyone wants some one-to-one coaching, or some one-to-one sex ed, or some solution-focused um, like life coaching, uh, I can do that now. Um, so uh, go check it out, justinhancock.co.uk. And until next time, bye!